Hello, my name is Cassidy Menard, and I'm here today with one of our podcast volunteers, Max Gross. Hey, everybody. Today on Starry and Decisis, we are going to be talking about tenancy rights. We're going to talk to four students here at UVic Law, and um, then we talk to legal advocates who work in this particular area. So before we get into the episode, we thought we would chat a little bit about why we wanted to make the episode in the first place. So for me, uh, when I first sat down with the other podcast managers, Tom and Patrick, who you know, um, we brainstormed ideas many months ago, and we didn't really have a, a mandate per se, um, but we knew that we wanted to talk about things that were timely and things that could have a sort of practical use for listeners. And so for me, when I thought of timely and practical, the first thing that came to mind was access to housing. I really don't have any experience with housing or tenancy law other than renting, (laughs) Um, but I just wanted to learn more. So Max, why did you want to work on this episode? Um, Yeah, I feel very similar. You know, I've been a renter for a long time, and I know how important good, safe housing is to mental health and to just, yeah, general keeping on, keeping on. So that's my personal relationship to this. I've never, I've luckily never had to deal with any serious eviction kind of stuff or any threat of being put out on the street. So to hear about how this is becoming such a prevalent issue, obviously it's been an issue for a long time, but it's only getting worse. And and the guests that we talked to were able to tell us all about that. Yeah, just 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 caring about this this issue and and really getting that sense that it's getting worse mm-hmm. out there for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. I thought we would also talk a little bit about the scope of the episode and you might say its shortcomings. So we we talk with students about their personal experiences and then we also speak with legal advocates about the legal tools at our disposal and kind of the the shortcomings of those legal tools. Um, But we don't really deep dive into um, the systemic reasons for housing inequality and things like the particular challenges that Indigenous people face in accessing housing. Like we we sort of get into it, but not really. But I did sort of want to highlight one thing. Uh, One of the lawyers, Robert, he spoke a lot about how a lot of our issues with housing have to do with this fundamental idea that we have about property and the fact that that conceptualization is something that was passed down from the Romans, which I thought was funny just because the Romans are like the OG colonizers. And um, I thought that was a really great illustration of how colonial systems are totally failing us. They're failing vulnerable people, they're failing indigenous people, but they're also really failing just the majority of people. So if you ever needed like buy-in for alternative indigenous ways of being, legal orders, all you have to do is look to the exorbitant housing prices. Uh, So we really hope that you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, Thank you, everybody. First up in our tenancy rights journey, we speak to four UVic law students. The first is a 3L student, Shannon Otruba who shared a renting experience from her undergrad. It was the typical rundown student housing, and a total of 14 people lived there. She talked to me about the different ways the landlords disregarded her rights and those of other students. 
very quickly, we started to have issues with our landlords. They were trying to wring every penny they could out of us. We were sort of confused about it and didn't know what we should do and didn't want to cause problems. You know, this is like two weeks into our tenancy. But it got really alarming when I, early on, it must have been in the first month that we were living there. I go out into the kitchen and there's two strange men in the utility closet where the hot water tank was in our kitchen. And I asked them what the hell they were doing there. And they just directed me to my landlords who were out in the back. And I go out into the backyard and demanded an explanation for what was happening. And I couldn't even get a word in. As soon as I expressed how upset I was, they started telling me that it was an emergency and that they were allowed to do that. This was my first experience researching the Residential Tenancy Act on my own. And even at that stage of my education and experience living on my own, I could easily figure out that they had violated the Residential Tenancy Act by coming into the unit without notice or permission. As we were doing our move-out inspection, they were just taking down every little thing, every scuff on the wall, dents, marks on the carpet, and they were saying that uh, there was a chip in the tub that required the entire bathroom to be renovated. It was in probably better condition than it was when we moved in because we actually cleaned it. I refused to sign off on the things that they were writing down on their move-out inspection, so it proceeded to arbitration. We had to wait six months between when we filed. We both filed against one another. Unfortunately for me, I spent this entire time basically collecting character evidence on these people, trying to demonstrate that this is a system. They own, at least at that time, they owned about 30 of these properties, and they almost exclusively, if not exclusively, rented to students so that they could take advantage of the fact that students don't know how to do a move-in inspection. And they also charged a full month's rent for security deposits because, again, students didn't know better. And at the end of it, they would scare students students into just giving them their security deposit. So this would be giving them thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. It didn't fully go in the landlord's favor, but it also wasn't great for us. We still had to pay them thousands of dollars so that they could renovate this bathroom, unfortunately. Uh, but the cherry on top of it was that I had posted in a UBC housing group, kind of calling for people who had lived with them or were currently living with them to get stories to corroborate this, this argument that I was trying to make that this is something that they do. They're taking advantage of students and they are finding loopholes in the Residential Tenancy Act and kind of flying underneath the radar. And they must have seen it because a few weeks after we received the decision from the arbitrator, and we'd paid them. I thought this was done. Finally, I'll never have to see these people again in my life. And I got a knock on my door on a Sunday at 9 p.m. And when I opened the door, they served me with a notice of civil claim, suing me for libel for damages of $2 million because of this Facebook post. I was absolutely losing my shit. Uh, my, my parents helped me hire a lawyer, a libel and defamation specialist lawyer in Vancouver, who looked at their notice of civil claim and actually laughed at it and said it looked like it was drafted by a child. And what I kind of realize now and, and, and recognize is that this was just an attempt to intimidate and scare me, which they did. Shannon also shared some advice for other renters. My 
first piece of advice for really anyone, but especially students, read the Residential Tenancy Act. It isn't a very long act. It's very easy to understand. The sections relevant to tenancy rights are really digestible and lay out what your rights and obligations are, I think, quite clearly. And any other resources that that you find, you know, there are, there are plenty of tenancy rights organization uh, relevant documents that can help a tenant understand what their rights are. Um, I also really recommend being very meticulous in your move-in inspection. That is one of the best ways to protect yourself in the event of arbitration for something at least related to uh, like getting your security deposit back or a landlord claiming that you did damage to their property when in fact it was already there before you moved in. You know, one of the aspects of the Residential Tenancy Act is that normal wear and tear is not something that you can lose your security deposit over. The other thing I would recommend is to use resources like the Law Students Legal Advice Program, which is a student-run legal aid program out of UBC. And lastly, Shannon talked about the emotional impact of this experience. It was very stressful. Uh, It was um, really detrimental to my mental health, ultimately. By the time the hearing was coming around, I was In the middle of my third year of my undergrad, I was wildly stressed out. I was frustrated that this happened in the first place. It made me kind of feel like an idiot a little bit. Like, how could I not have known that they would be the people that they were? How could I not have seen the state that that house was in and known that these were not good landlords? How could I not have known to read the RTA before I sign a lease? How could I not have known to be really careful doing my move-in inspection? And then, you know, I was also very frustrated with the arbitration hearing itself because I felt unheard by the arbitrator. And of course, they just see what's in front of them. They're hearing a lot of different files and, and they can't just take me at my word necessarily, but... I remember that hearing so viscerally because I was on the verge of tears for part of it, just wildly frustrated. Yeah, I think that was honestly one of my first experiences, if not my first experience interacting with the legal system. And it was horrible. Um, It was scary and frustrating and made me feel powerless. You've said that there, you know, there was no justice. What would a solution look like for you? I think at the very least, I hoped that the really outrageous things that they were claiming we should have paid for would be brushed off. The ultimate solution I was I was hoping for was that there would be some kind of legal consequence for their operation as a whole. And I just didn't realize that that was way beyond the scope of what the, the Residential Tenancy Board can do. Next up, I spoke with a 1L student who also had a landlord that did not respect her or her roommates. This lack of respect was perhaps best exemplified when they discovered that the landlord had set up cameras to see if they were intentionally knocking over a stack of bricks when they parked in the driveway. It was just kind of shocking that he would feel it was okay to film us specifically for the purpose of like catching us in the act of something without our knowledge, without our consent, without even consulting us about the issue because it wasn't us we're knocking over the bricks. He had many other complaints about us as tenants for not letting him raise the rent by 25% because we were so evil. 
food was just so expensive. And how could he be expected to have to deal with these inflationary costs? He could be quite condescending and a little bit sexist as well. And there was definitely that dynamic of like, I'm the older, more experienced man and you're young girls who are just flitting around my house. And so I think he felt that it was reasonable to film young women as they were coming into the driveway um, because he just never trusted or respected us. He would often kind of text a really sarcastic response. Um, Like one time somebody didn't empty the lint trap in the drying machine. And he sent us a text saying, do you ladies need a tutorial on how to use the lint trap in a drying machine? This experience ultimately ended in legal action. We did break a mirror and I actually offered to pay for it. And he refused because he's like, no, I'm keeping your entire damage deposit. There is no way you're getting anything back. You've been manipulative. You're a liar. He kind of has a challenge in a way was like, well, take it to dispute resolution. See if I care. Like Shannon, this student is facing a very long wait time. The dispute resolution is so backed up that we won't be going there until May of this year. And I filed back in August, I believe. She also expressed some concerns about the current legal tools available to renters. Most people aren't going to go and find the Residential Tenancy Act because it's just not very realistic. And this information that we see is out there. It is out there, but it does take a lot of digging and it takes a lot of reading and a lot of kind of trying to figure it out. I spent a lot of time also calling like the residential tenancy branch kind of hotline through the government. Um, And then you're waiting on hold for another hour or something to speak to somebody. You contact the um, TRAC for BC and they give you different advice or different legal information than the government branch. And it's very confusing to try to kind of parse everything together. One of the things that, you know, I've been learning this semester is that the law isn't as transparent as we would like it to be and that there are a lot of interpretive liberties that you can take. And I think both organizations were just trying to give the best advice that they could according to what was, I guess, represented in the act. But I think one of the ways also just to hopefully streamline the process would just be by having more people available. Finally, she had some advice for students. If you have the opportunity to glance over the relevant parts of the act for you, it is helpful to have that knowledge. And then also, I think, especially for young women, to kind of set boundaries a little bit more strictly early on. And I understand the fear of setting those boundaries, especially when you have a good deal in an apartment or a house and you don't want to lose that and you're afraid of angering your landlord and that somehow they'll evict you, which can and does happen. But I think especially if at the beginning you're able to just set a little bit more boundaries and kind of show that you do have some expectations of the landlord, I think that helps and then they don't feel as confused later when they realize that there are things that they have to do on their end rather than just having their property as passive income. 3L student Erin McLean also talked about the fear of jeopardizing your housing when bringing up problems with landlords. It's pretty tough to keep living in a space where the people who own the space you live in don't like you or you're not getting along. So like I know the residential tenancy branch in that process, in my experience, it's not an avenue that a renter is going to actively pursue 
for all those reasons at the end of the day maybe you got a little bit extra money but now you have to find a new place to live and probably pay more money the legal system i think it works it just based on this climate that we're in at the moment it's not really feasible for most people my age old motto is basically like capitalism is the problem <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but uh, that's not going away it's supply and demand. There's not enough rentals. And until landlords aren't certain that they can rent out that space for whatever price it is that they want, then there's not really any bargaining power. And that's not to say that there aren't amazing landlords out there that are very open to that kind of conversation and negotiation. And that's great. And I wouldn't count my landlords out of that. But yeah, at the end of the day, even when you have good landlords, you are so replaceable. And on the other hand, our home is not so replaceable. Lastly, Max spoke with a 1L student, Jeanette, who had arranged a rental through a family friend, only to find out that it was less than promised. Like hindsight, definitely should have done more investigation, but she was sending me pictures. She's like, yeah, I'm just finishing up renovations and this is what it looks like. And I get to Victoria, I'm already on the ferry and she texts me, once I get off the ferry, saying like, yeah, it's not ready. She's like, yeah, I think we just need a few more weeks. And I didn't have another choice because I started school in the morning. So I was like, okay, so we go downstairs and it's completely unfinished. There's no floors. There's no running electricity properly. That day they were just fitting in the kitchen, but there wasn't like a microwave yet. There wasn't a stove yet. It was just like the bare bones of a kitchen, like the cupboard and the sink. There's sawdust everywhere. There's an open bandsaw. There's all their storage, whatever was down there is still down there, just like completely messy. And like my breaking point was that I had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and I'm walking and I hit a plywood and the nail almost hits me in the face. And I was like, I can't, I have to get out of here. One of our classmates who used to be in construction and um, was an electrician and I was telling him about it and he was like, oh, like, do you have any pictures that you can show me? I'll give you an accurate estimate. And he was like, that is going to take four more months minimum to do. And she didn't have any um, recourse. She was just like, just put up with this, basically. Yeah, pretty much. She was like, there's like nothing I can do. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to move out. And I didn't pay, but she did ask me if I was going to pay for the time that I stayed there. And I was like, no, probably not. (laughs) Gina echoed the thoughts of her fellow law students about the need for more tenancy rights awareness. Tenants definitely have a lot of rights. You just feel like you're at a disadvantage, so you have a harder way of accessing the system when you don't know your rights. After speaking with the students, Max and I were eager to get some clarity on our rights as renters. First, take a listen to this conversation I had with TRAC, the Tenant Resource and Advisory Centre. My name is Susanna Madrobic. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a lawyer at TRAC's Housing Law Clinic. I'm Robert Patterson. I'm a staff lawyer at TRAC's Housing Law Clinic, and I use he, him pronouns. If you could just tell us a little bit about the work that TRAC does and uh, your role within it. Uh, yeah, so TRAC is the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center. We provide legal education, support, and advocacy to tenants across British Columbia, both by helping people individually with their issues, um, the questions they come to us with, or legal disputes they want us to help them with, uh, as well as 
a larger systemic advocacy role in talking to government about legislative and policy change and otherwise in engaging with tenants uh, where they are and trying to help with, with their housing issues. Is there a big difference between the kind of work that you each do? Track has a couple different parts to it. So we have a legal representation sort of team of advocates, uh, and there's also the housing law clinic um, that they do different kinds of work. So our legal advocates help tenants with uh, primarily residential tenancy branch or RTB hearings, whereas work with the housing law clinic primarily does judicial review of RTB decisions in BC Supreme Court, as well as other housing law matters that fall outside the RTB's jurisdiction. And that includes things like co-op disputes, co-op appeals to BC Supreme Court, uh, as well as other things that fall sort of outside the RTV purview. So things like roommate disputes that don't fall under the act um, or strata disputes between a strata and a tenant that fall under the strata property act. Who are the clients that you see most frequently? And do you have a sense of why they are most in need of tracks services? Well, tenants is generally who comes to us. So we don't help landlords. We don't help property owners, uh, condo owners, none of that. Just tenants, people who essentially rent. Uh, our advocacy programs primarily help low-income tenants. Um, so people on income assistance or people just making not a lot of income. Uh, the housing law clinic doesn't have sort of a strict uh, income limit, partly because judicial review and other Supreme Court matters um, just have a higher cost to, associated with them to um, to bring forward. So, you know, a person who we might expect to be able to go through the arbitration process themselves may not be able to do the same thing in the Supreme Court. Tenants with high incomes, we still send to lawyers in the private bar because it doesn't make sense for our programs to assist people who make a lot of money. I mean, I guess in, in general, sort of tenants that are more vulnerable and less able to get representation or get legal assistance from other sources tend to be those who come to us and those who you know, we give assistance to. The general people who contact us, it skews lower income, skews more likely to be on disability or people who are dealing with a physical or mental disability um, and people who uh, tend to identify as female. That's interesting, that last statistic about gender. I spoke with a student who felt that her difficult relationship with her landlord was exacerbated by the gender dynamic between them. I mean, yeah, a landlord-tenant relationship is always one, there's an in, a baked-in power imbalance. And when you layer on other sort of systemic uh, imbalances and systemic oppressions, that on top of that, just it just sort of builds and accretes <laughs> into uh, an unfair situation. It rarely changes legal advice, only if it would somehow engage like a human rights issue, which we generally don't advise on because we are not, we're not human rights lawyers at the end of the day. A person who wants to bring a legal dispute has to feel comfortable uh, entering into that kind of dispute with their landlord. Uh, and for practical and personal reasons, they may decide they don't want to do that. And I would imagine oftentimes it's related to sort of how that relationship, how, how it's mediated and, and affected by uh, those other st uh, structural systems. I think one of the questions I had was how realistic it is for someone to, I think I said arbitration, undertake arbitration, but just in general, bring things into the legal sphere. I mean, I think the dispute resolution process at the residential tenancy branch specifically is designed to be accessible to people who are self-represented, so people who don't have a lawyer or an advocate representing them. And I, I think it does accomplish that to some extent. No matter what is going to be time-consuming, and it's going to be a little bit to a lot dip difficult, depending on the person who's trying to do it and where their strengths are. Um, 
you have to be able to organize evidence. You have to be able to formulate something of a legal argument. Um, but Supreme Court is even less accessible, obviously, for the obvious reasons. It's everything is more complicated about it. And I think like it's always going to have an impact on your landlord-tenant relationship. And so part of that first decision is deciding how do you want to manage this? Because at the end of the day, you're like, we cannot solve the systemic power imbalance between landlord and tenant. It's baked into the nature of how we organize ownership of property in our society. And so without a massive socioeconomic rewrite, uh, it, that, that core nugget of the problem is still there to stay. Sometimes you have to take the practical reality of maybe it is just better to live with something slightly suboptimal because we're in the midst of a housing crisis and you don't want to risk that for your tenancy. And that's just a personal choice someone has to has to make. And on the one hand, I think it sucks that people have to choose. On the other hand, it's essential to think about. Yeah, that's that's exactly what um, another student that I was speaking with said. Like she she's sort of in this not ideal situation, but it doesn't want to ruin the relationship. Do you see people then continue to rent with? their landlord after that? Lots of tenants continue to rent from the same landlords after they've gone through disputes, sometimes for many years. Uh, and sometimes the relationship doesn't suffer that much, or it does, and then it gets better again over time. Um, but it really just depends on the disposition of the people involved in the dispute. That's at least like sort of somewhat hopeful. You've sort of touched on it, but if there were any other most common issues that you see, or maybe things that crop up that have like a sense of urgency? I think our advocacy program mostly deals with evictions and there are a lot of evictions happening in the lower mainland and in other places in BC. Uh, there's a, been a large increase in evictions specifically for landlord use. So where a landlord says, hey, I want to use this property for me to move in or for a close family member to move in. Once that eviction happens, we see tenants coming to us saying, hey, my landlord evicted me saying he was going to move in, but then never did. The housing law clinic also sees a fair amount of people coming to us after they've already disputed an eviction notice, lost, and now the RTB has given the landlord a two-day order of possession that says the tenant has to be out in two days uh, from the time that they receive that order. So that penalty for a landlord not following through on the two-month notice is 12 months of rent, which on the one hand, it can be a lot of money, depending on how much rent there was. There's problems with it because also it means the punishment amount is kind of inverse to the profit. You evict a tenant paying $800 a month and you bring in someone paying 2000 The penalty is lower than if you were evicted someone paying 1500 a month. So the more profit you can make, actually the less the penalty is. Because those awards are bigger, it's making more financial sense for landlords to try their own judicial reviews of those kinds of decisions. And so we're seeing more of uh, landlords trying to appeal those cases to Supreme Court. And that's something that we've we've gotten engaged in a little bit because it's one of those areas, it's a few areas where tenants do have a decent right. Uh, and it does pose somewhat of a disincentive for landlords to engage in that bad faith behavior. So we've taken on some of those cases in an attempt to try and defend that right and prevent a bad court decision that sort of waters it down. When the rules around rent evictions were changed to make them harder to do, the number of rent evictions went off a cliff and the number of two-month notice for landlord use moving in evictions had a big uptick. So the bad faith is still there. It's just changed its form. That's interesting. I feel like I, I don't know enough about the evictions process. So is it just basically a, like a loophole to in the evictions process is that you could, the landlord can say that they want to use it for themselves and and that it makes it easier for them to evict their tenants? It probably is the easiest way a 
landlord can evict tenants because first all they have to do is issue the tenant a notice that says hey uh you have two months to move because i want to move in and then it's on the tenant to dispute that notice so the tenant has to decide whether or not they want to challenge it and go to the rtb knowing that or possibly knowing that if they do that they might end up with a two-day order of possession at the end of the day when they if and when they lose if they don't dispute, there's no arbitrator ever looks at it, right? So no one will ever judge whether it make, even makes sense that the landlords can move in. You know, they could say that they're moving in, they actually live in a mansion in Barbados. Uh, if it, they do dispute it, there's no disclosure process. Uh, if a tenant wants to try and figure out what properties the other landlord owns uh, that, they, that might make more sense for them to move into, you know, good luck. Good luck, tenant. Go out and find them. Do your own uh, title searches. Find out what <laughs> shell companies the landlord might have that uh, are holding properties for them. The decision-making quality and consistency at the branch is uh, wanting. I think in the last year or two, there was a case where uh, a wealthy landlord bought a two-story walk-up in Kitsilano, and they were from Alberta, and they gave two-month notices to everyone in the building, effectively saying that they and a random assortment of family members were all going to move from different places in the province to live in this 50-year-old rundown walk-up. All the tenants disputed. And I think most of them won, but one or two didn't win. On the face of it, it seems kind of absurd. But, you know, the challenge is, of course, you know, how does a tenant prove they don't intend to do that other than just saying, well, it doesn't make sense. There's so many, there's so many things to rant about, especially about evictions. Yeah, no, I love the ranting. This is, this is great. One of the students said that she had a really hard time with her arbitration process because she, she didn't have the right evidence to bring. So do you kind of encounter a lot of clients coming to you and, and thinking that they have a case, but you're like, actually, no. Yeah, I think tenants often, and landlords too, uh, bring evidence to an RTV hearing that is irrelevant at best. It is tough to know sometimes what evidence you should bring. I think just the best advice is thinking about what the thing is that you need to prove is and what evidence do you have of that. And sometimes that evidence is just testimony. And that is sometimes enough. Or at least arbitrators think that it's enough. It is enough sometimes and should be sometimes. Not always. I, I We're going to have an argument live on podcasts, but I think that there should be, there needs to be some kind of minimum standard for evidence for these kind of hearings, right? Like they, they should have to put it in an affidavit form. They should have to swear it ahead of time and the tenant should have some chance to be able to review it and gather evidence that might counter it, right? Or there should be some list of information they have to provide. Like right now, when you give an eviction notice, you don't even have to say the name of the person moving in. You just take the box for the relation they are, a parent, uh, a parent of the landlord or the spouse, the landlord or the spouse themselves, or a child of the landlord or the spouse. Like there should be a name, there should be an address, there should be an occupation, place of work, like some basic information. Um, that is necessary but i yeah. agree with that i'm just saying that there are some things that you can't have anything other than testimony for i agree that's that i agree too it should just be an affidavit form so that a tenant has a chance to know it ahead of time i disagree <laughs> with that but this is for another time <laughs> this is good this is like real real-time conversation <laughs> Um, are there things that you would recommend that uh, maybe students in particular should look out for as red flags before they sign a lease or anything in particular they, they should do before they sign a lease? I think some good steps to take, especially if we're talking about law students, is become familiar with the law and the policy. I know that the act is not necessarily the most exciting thing to read, but it is at least somewhat readable in comparison to other legislation. 
and it will only help to know what your rights and obligation under the act are. As far as red flags go, um, I mean, anything that makes you feel uncomfortable when you're looking at an ad is probably a red flag. A friend of mine was looking for a place a while ago and that he went to look at a place where the landlord said that he would insist on doing weekly inspections and there were all kinds of weird sort of rules about what they can and can't do in the unit. So like if a person looks like they're gonna constantly invade your privacy or something along those lines, maybe don't rent from them. Like it's probably not worth renting from them and then trying to enforce your rights under the RTA because they keep breaching them. Like if you know at the outset, this is what they're gonna do. You can also go to www.rentingitright.ca. Wonderful online course put together by TRAC and the Justice Education Society that can educate tenants on your rights and obligations. And it also has even a part on dispute resolution, new and shiny for 2022, uh, that educates people on how the dispute resolution process works, how to run a hearing, how to prepare, all that jazz. Uh, it's very useful. It's a layman mistake, but I think law students make it too of just like not reading the contract. Always, always read it. Uh, I remember in law school, the famous case of the law student who tried to sue a uh, one of the ski hills in Whistler about their waiver uh, did not work because they were law students. So there's precedent that if you're a law student, you're extra expected to read the contract and to know what you're agreeing to. If a landlord's asking for payment before signing a contract before handing over keys, um, it can get dicey. So there are cases where a tenant might, you know, you'll want to rush to pay a deposit because paying a deposit generally is proof of the establishment of a tenancy. But if a tenant pays a deposit and then the landlord shows up with an agreement with a bunch of wild terms in it, now you're in this weird limbo where, you know, you can argue, I think the right answer is the deposit created the tenancy these new random terms are perhaps an amendment to that agreement, the implicit agreement you already had, unless any of them were discussed before. And there's an argument you shouldn't have to be bound by them. But now you're in a sticky situation where if you don't have the keys yet, you may have to sign to get them. So generally speaking, if possible, get the terms nailed down first before paying. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I also love that you mentioned that case. When I was looking at the track website, there was also some pamphlets and things as well. Like, are there other resources in addition to that website that you could speak to? There's also our uh, tenant survival guide, which is in wiki book form, which is linked on our website as well, which is quite useful. Uh, it has quite a few citations to the Residential Tenancy Act itself. So if a tenant wants those in order to formulate a legal argument, that's a good place for it. Uh, I guess the RTB website, uh, like outside of looking at the act, you can. they also have sort of pages of information about your rights and obligations under the act. And they also have their policy guidelines up there, which are worth looking at. Yeah, that's great to know, um, because I, I was speaking with a student who, who did say that they thought that the RTA was confusing. Another question I really wanted to ask was about like solutions to to these tenancy problems and and I guess like what kinds of solutions both do you see most frequently and and whether you would consider these to be real solutions like is there justice <laughs> um, if quote unquote justice that's definitely a very big question. Um... So like in terms of practical solutions, there are, they come in lots of different forms. So from my perspective as approaching like a tenant, it's first most important thing is to identify like what is their end goal? What do they actually want? And is it feasible to attain that? And what are the possible ways to get there? Like oftentimes tenants will want things that the they just cannot get under the Residential Tenancy Act. They cannot get an arbitrator to order. In that case, you know, the only way to get that if any, it might be through settlement with the landlord. So you have to you have to negotiate. You have to figure out some kind of compromise. Um, 
that that gets the gets them what they want, and they may have to give up something else for that. Whether that's like how much rent they're paying, whether that's making sure something is continues as a long term tenancy. You know, one of the problems with the act, not to go on another uh, uh, rant again, uh, is that there's no real provision that prevents a landlord from ever not issuing further eviction notices, and you can't get an arbitrator to order a landlord to stop doing it. You can say that you know if a landlord keeps giving bad notices that are clearly invalid, that that will breach a tenant's right to quiet enjoyment. It'll disturb them and harass them effectively, and therefore they're entitled to some compensation. But you can't sort of give a blanket order that says all eviction notices going forward or for the next year are banned. As to like a broader question of justice, I think that's a much more complex question. Uh, the heart of the landlord use eviction problem is that in our society, the, the general the sort of ideology of property is that if you own something, you can do what you want with it. Uh, it is like this core tenet of property law passed down from the Romans, right? And it's really hard to get away from that. Even though tenancy law exists as this whole suite of, of legal ramifications that says, if you agree to contract away the right of occupancy and the right of use, like that is its own alienation. You have the right to do that, but that creates rights for the other person. Still, the ideology of property is stronger than that ideology of contract. And that that is really where so much of the the unfairness uh, and the injustice of I think of landlord tenant and law lies. It's in the core fundamentals of property relations and how they mediate and undermine human relations. So you know, this is all to say that to really deliver like actual justice to the like actual housing justice and social housing justice um, requires a bigger rethink of how in general how we delineate, manage, and conceptualize property in society. I do then have, I guess, like another big ask, uh, even bigger maybe, um, but you you both sort of talked about some things that you would like to see, maybe decisions that arbitrators would be making. Um, and so I'm curious if there's something in particular that you think would like go a very long way in addressing the housing crisis, or, you know, maybe not like the biggest thing, but something that seems like the most feasible, likely to happen uh, sooner rather than later? Let's do a top three each. I think that's the best way to do it. Let's, uh, let's do one, one and keep going that way. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like first, I think we need more protections for tenants that sort of protect their right to occupy, their security of tenure. And to do that, we need to essentially get rid of the profit motive for evicting tenants, right? Because that is in my view, that is why we are in the place that we are at with evictions. That's why we're sort of the evictions capital of Canada is because there's such a huge profit motive for evicting tenants. There are lots of different ways to do that. And one that we've been advocating for for some time now is vacancy control or what we call vacancy control, which is essentially saying that there's a cap on how much you can increase rent between tenancies, because right now there is none. So when one tenancy ends and the landlord can set the rent at whatever they want for the next tenant coming in, which is why we've seen such skyrocketing rents here, despite the fact that we have rent stabilization. So following on the security of tenure theme, that'll probably be like the first chunk of what we talked about. The eviction process needs to be changed. So the first thing to do would be to change like the fundamental eviction process. So right now, like Susanna said earlier, landlord just gives a piece of paper to a tenant 
the burden is on the tenant to actually engage the legal process to decide whether the eviction is justified. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, it makes sense if you want to reduce the number of hearings you have to have uh, at the residential tenancy branch. It makes no sense if you want to actually make sure people's security and tenure is protected, that people don't lose their homes because they didn't file uh, in response to a piece of paper within the time frame, which can be as short as five days. Here's Here, tenant, here's five days to, to dispute this notice. We don't care even if English isn't your first language and all the forms are in English. Good luck. So start by having the landlord be the one to to uh, file at the RTB for that order of possession. Tagging along almost like a uh, an, uh, an alternative, a lesser alternative to vacancy control could just be something like if a tenancy ends by eviction, the next tenant can't pay, the next tenancy cannot be pay any more rent. At least then a tenant gets gets some compensation, gets some opportunity to start again somewhere new and doesn't get evicted on a as short as a two-day notice. And I think I know where it's going to go next. That's definitely where I was going to go next. So I'm glad you stopped talking because I didn't have another idea lined up. Um, so the two-day orders of possession. If we want to improve security of tenure and we're not willing to make landlords be the ones to apply to evict, then let's at least stop disincentivizing tenants from applying by saying, hey, you can apply to cancel this notice if you think it's in bad faith. But if you do and you lose, you may have to be out in two days after you get that decision. That's insane. Like, I would not dispute a notice to end tenancy because of that reason. Like, it doesn't make sense. The, the risk is just so high. And then, you know, if you do lose, you have to scramble to put in a review consideration internally at the branch or file for judicial review to get a stay just to buy yourself time. It's, in, it's incredible the resource waste that results from that, right? People going into court simply because they can't feasibly move in two days. So don't disincentivize people from fighting evictions. Okay. I took two on the first go, so I, I did say top three. So we each need to get one more. Here's a real big picture one. And it's not just an amendment to the act. This is my big policy scheme dream. So there's a big talk right now about revitalizing and preserving existing housing stock uh, in the lower mainland. A lot of older apartment buildings are coming to that time where they need a lot of renovations and repair to keep going. We're also seeing greater effects of climate change uh, in British Columbia now. A lot of buildings are not ready for that. They have inadequate heating or cooling, uh, or they're otherwise not going to be resilient to other effects of climate change, air filtration, things like that. How we upgrade that housing is a point of conversation and contention right now. Likely, and what is already exists and what like the path is that we're going to continue to go down, is the classic sort of public-private partnership route, where the government provides public funds to subsidize through grants and subsidies to allow landlord, private landlords to do that work to their own buildings with government money for nothing in return, right? The, the trade being private landlords get to have public money to repair their assets and the public enjoys the fact that these buildings continue to exist, I guess. That is not a good trade. That is a bad purchase for the public. You are giving everyone's money to just subsidize the private profits of a landlord who, if they're making money from the property, either through rent or when they're going to make money from selling it, uh, you're just effectively insulating those profits. A classic public-private partnership deal. Instead, I think we should look at different models for doing that. Things should be tied to that grant. Things like agreements not increase rent. Things like covenants from the landlord to do certain things refrain from doing other things. In a best case scenario, there's opportunity there for more radical uh, approaches, right? Something like where we can offer to landlords, there are grants available, but it's going to require, you know, some kind of interest, some kind of property interest or value being transferred back to get any other direction. You know, you can have public money for your property, but 
government's going to get something on the title that says they're able, they have a right of purchase in the future. So we can start actually using public funds to secure and actually stabilize long-term housing in a more significant way. So that's, that's a big, that's a big picture, big policy idea. That's not just the RTA. That might actually not be anything in the RTA. That's probably all through other kind of grants uh, and, and uh, other sort of structures, but we're in what year 20 of the housing crisis uh, and it's only gotten worse. It's only gotten exacerbated by other crises, by the overdose crisis, by the ever growing crisis of climate change. Um, you know, we need to actually start doing something like pulling out the stops at some point, if not now, when? Well, thank you so much. Um, I really, really appreciate that you took the time to talk to me. Thanks for having us on. Socialize housing now. As a final note, Max got some more insight on the housing crisis from TAPS, the Together Against Poverty Society. I'm here talking with Doug King at TAPS. Maybe Doug, you can tell us a little bit about what TAPS does. Yeah, TAPS is uh, one of the largest providers of legal aid services actually in Greater Victoria. We focus on legal advocacy, so our role is is to provide assistance to people with a lot of the the legal issues that are in the tribunal systems. So we deal with residential tenancy branch and tenancy issues. Uh, We deal with the Employment Assistance Tribunal on income assistance and testability cases, Employment Standards Tribunal with Employment Standards cases. So it's really um, a focus on the, the type of issues that often come up, legally speaking, for people who are living in poverty. Our goal and our focus is to provide you know, direct legal services to people, so we're doing one-on-one representation. Uh, we also do a lot of legal education and then try to do a little bit of kind of like skills building and, and empowerment as well so that uh, people can navigate the system themselves. And um, over the last few years, certainly tenancy has probably been the number one issue and definitely has been the greatest demand on our time. I think we all have our obvious associations with how poverty connects to tenancy issues, but if you could just talk out about that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why why it's been so extreme in the last few years is because we started to see some of the problems we had in the housing market and affordability in the housing market just really start to creep and extend into greater and greater areas. You know, when, when we see rent increase the way that it has in the last few years, when it starts to go up by hundreds of dollars each year on average, you know, you know, it used to be that it wasn't so far away from, from people on disability benefits. Uh, someone on, on a pension uh, who had the guaranteed income supplement from the federal government, you know, their income typically wasn't that far away from finding a place to live in the private market. Um, now it's not even close. So what that means is more and more people dependent on the government for support in their housing. If they have been living in the private market and they lose their housing or they're under threat of eviction, then there isn't anywhere else in the private market for them to go. So we're seeing this flood of people, a lot of people on disability, a lot of people who are seniors who have been living in buildings for decades and decades, and because of rent control inside your tenancy, uh, their rent is quite low. Leaving that that housing, losing that housing, there obviously just isn't enough units to catch everybody, and that's ultimately one of the reasons why we're starting to see homelessness rise again. I feel like it can be so easy for us as a society to have this false dichotomy, this black and white thinking around like people who are facing homelessness and people who are not. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, there there are far more people right now in, in our current housing market where loss of housing means a realistic chance of homelessness. You know, one of the problems that we have is is a conversation in our society that so much divides the, the private kind of housing market, the rental market, and social housing. 
we look at those two things sometimes as different worlds and as different people. Um, there's a lot more overlap there than people realize, and it's for that reason why the number one thing that we call for when we think that would be the most effective in, in handling the housing crisis right now is vacancy control, which would be extending the rent control limitations not just to inside of a tenancy, but between tenancies as well. This is actually in place in, in a number of areas, a uh, number of, of locations. It's been part of the Montreal's housing system for a long time. Uh, it's also provincially in place in PEI. So that's probably the one place that has the best example of, of what it would look like in BC. And the wild thing about it is that it's it's literally just one sentence that's different in their Residential Tenancy Act. One line in their Tenancy Act that says, you know, the rent can't be raised in between tenancies. That's all it says. And, and it's a radical change. And it's funny because when we talk about it, you know, it gets treated as a really, really radical proposal, um, but it really is just an extension of the existing protection we have, which we know the government put in place to protect rent from increasing. It's just an extension of that to the period of time in between tenancies. And and really what it's exposed is how dependent on that uh, landlords and development companies are to increase their profits, and honestly to have the profits that they currently have. It's created an unsustainable level of both profit and increase in rent, um, and threatening that, not surprisingly elicits a strong reaction from those who have benefited and frankly become outrageously rich on it. Say it doesn't end up getting as bad as having to be on the streets. What are people doing and what are some options that people are pursuing just to just to survive and have a roof over their heads? I think one of the things that's important to remember is that, you know, like well we often segment parts of the housing market and and draw a distinction between government, like social housing and private housing. All of these things are connected. And and what we've been finding is that the more people who are under threat in the housing market and the private market, the more people that are evicted who then all of a sudden require government support means there's less subsidized housing spots available. All of this runs downhill and, and what we find is more and more people can't get into subsidized spots. That then in turn ultimately puts pressure on the shelter system. It puts pressure on the supportive housing sites. You know, supportive housing being not just government funded where you get a reduction in rent. They're also supposed to be programming and supports. It's typically targeted at people that have you know, really entrenched addictions, significant mental health concerns. You know, all of these all of these aspects of the housing market are feeling this pressure because there isn't enough space and, and people are not being held by the private market. You know, everyone is kind of suffering as a result of that. And it's also one of the reasons why you hear more and more stories about the supportive housing sites and how they're not doing well. Because again, we're trying to get as many people off the streets as possible. And when you're trying to rush and you're trying to get as many people and jam them into as many spots as possible, uh, it often has bad outcomes. So what's the definition of supportive housing? Supportive housing, uh, well, the definition itself is very much in debate because, you know, we're a nonprofit provider, but we don't provide housing. We provide advocacy for people in housing. And, and what we find is that there's a very, very strong distinction between what we think and what the nonprofit housing providers think. So this has gotten worse over time. You know, it wasn't that long ago where you might see the supportive housing sites. You know, these are buildings like the Johnson Street building that's run by the Portland Hotel Society, um, the Mike Dora Place on Pandora that's run by Kool-Aid. Uh, these type of buildings where on the guise of security and protection of the tenants, they're often very tightly restricted. And ultimately what, what's happened is that a lot of those nonprofit providers have said the Residential Tenancy Act just doesn't work in these buildings. So they've actively tried to get themselves exempted. Uh, and what it means is that if you're in one of those buildings, you effectively have no tenancy rights. It could mean summary eviction. So you do something wrong against the rules. Uh, you get a letter that says you have to be out and that's it. 
no ability to fight it, no way to challenge it. You really have a higher level of government control in those buildings um, that is passed on to the nonprofit sector. So the nonprofit sector takes control over those individuals, decides who goes, who stays. Uh, it's a very different type of housing. Certainly the vast majority of people who live in ordinary apartment buildings uh, or even subsidized ones would find it to be a really difficult environment to live in. And how long, say you get one of those notices in that situation, how long do you have until you have to be out? I mean, there's no standardization at all. So it depends on which nonprofit runs your building, depends on how much they like you, to be perfectly honest. Uh, we see people who are kicked out immediately. Uh, we see people who are given a 30-day notice. We see people who are given a bit of a weird multiple strike system where you get two warnings and then you're out. You know, we had one case that was really difficult for us where somebody was kicked out immediately, um, instantly made homeless, uh, because they suspected that they had a fire in their room. Two weeks later, they were able to confirm that they were wrong. It's too late. The person's been homeless for two weeks. They've been sleeping on the street for two weeks. You know, there's no due process whatsoever. And and I think, unfortunately, a lot of the nonprofits that run these buildings really rely on and they really focus on their intention, you know, their effort, and their desire to do good and to provide safe and effective housing for people as a means of circumventing process and fairness. Not saying that they don't have good intentions, but everybody makes mistakes. And in this world, and in those buildings especially, if you make mistakes, you know, the consequence is severe. And there's no accountability. No, none whatsoever. And in, in the cases where TAPS has tried to bring, uh, you know, cases against these providers to, to challenge their authority to do this, first of all, it's really hard to do because the person that you're trying to, to work with has now been made homeless. So they have other things that they got to focus on. The Tennessee branch typically puts those as low priority. So you might get a hearing months and months away. And then ultimately what we found is that BC Housing will back them up. You know, BC Housing used to be the one that made the decision on whether or not buildings were covered by the act. Um, they have actively now supported nonprofits and trying to get themselves exempt from the rules and the protections in, in the Tennessee Act. So because they have BC Housing support in doing this, we're finding the branch is not willing to overturn that as well. And for now, those supportive housing sites are effectively being run without any kind of rules or any kind of accountability. We know the government is alive to that and that there needs to be a long-term solution, but to be perfectly honest, nobody seems to know what that solution is. When you're looking at these situations from the outside, it can be easy to oversimplify people in the situation, but they're yep. dealing with all these timelines, bureaucratic systems that are not in line. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, honestly, over the years, what I've seen um, is, is that as as the housing market continues to be bad, as, as we keep trying to layer on solutions to it, try new things to try to fix it, the system just gets more and more complicated. It gets harder for people to navigate. You know, the residential tenancy branch specifically was designed to be supposed to be the kind of place where you can do it yourself. You know, ultimately, a lot of these systems were created to try to cut out lawyers from the system so the government didn't have to pay for legal aid anymore. Uh, and that ultimately led to organizations like us having to step in and provide support because they're not accessible. Um, they're certainly not accessible to people with disabilities. Um, they're not accessible to anybody that has other pressing concerns in their life. And we've also seen that push to, to digitize again, save more money, less storefronts. There are no residential tenancy branch storefronts anymore. If you want to file, you know, for the most part, you have to do it online. 
there's one place at, at Uptown where you can go called the BC Service Office and they can provide you with support to file. As it gets harder and harder for people to access justice in the system, um, you see more and more outcomes that happen as a result of the failure for access to justice, not because of actual like cause or reason or effect. When, when you make decisions not based on the merits of a case, but out of fear, then we're not actually properly serving people. One of the only ways that a landlord can end a tenancy now without it being the tenant's fault for cause is through their own use of the property. The other way they used to be able to do that was rent evictions. And, and the government changed those rules to make it so a landlord has to apply now to get an eviction for renovations. They have to prove that they're actually gonna do this work. And so now landlords are issuing two month notices for their use left, right, and center. You know, it's frustrating for so many reasons. One, obviously, because we see this, we've been seeing it for a while now, and it takes the government so long to respond and react to it. And I do think they're gonna get there eventually and they're gonna change it so that it's landlord application, but God knows how long it's gonna take. You know, and the other reason why it's so frustrating is that there's a simpler solution. That's that vacancy control we talked about. It's real rent control that actually expands in between tenancies. That's really the solution here because it takes away the motivation and actually changes the power dynamic between a landlord and a tenant. It makes it harder for a landlord to monetize a tenant and to treat them as a monetary asset. It makes it so that a landlord has to look at their tenant more like a human being instead of an investment. That's the fundamental change we need in the housing market. But the government has not been willing to make that change. You know, the people that make money off of these investment properties, they have a financial stake in our society and in our government. And we also see this narrative over and over again about supply. Supply will solve the housing prices. We just need to build more. And the only way you're going to do that is with property developers. It's a vicious cycle. Um, at the end of the day, nobody in government seems to be willing to do the one thing that we know would matter the most to tenants, the people who need it the most. Uh, and that is endlessly frustrating. <laughs> What's specific to the Victoria scene in all this? You know, for Victoria, the type of housing we have that's, that's really at risk right now is these low-rise apartment buildings. These apartment buildings that were built in the 60s and 70s, you know, that line the kind of major streets we have, like Burnside, Esquimalt. Those are the places where you're going to find those people that have been living there for 30 years. And their rent is like $700 or $800 because the landlord's never been able to raise it above that. And the real unique problem we have in Victoria is how much those buildings are being targeted. They're being targeted by real estate investment firms uh, who look to purchase those buildings, do cosmetic renovations, and flip the units. And they actually look at them as an asset because they know that they have people in there that pay low rent. They know they can buy it for a lower amount because it's not generating much revenue. They need to do what they need to do to get people out. And then there's a much more higher earning potential. That's what's led to these these cases that we keep seeing, which to us are mind-blowing, where property development firms, these families, they say, who own multiple properties, you know, where you're dealing with one today, or this, this family is saying that they need this person to move out, this person just happens to be paying the lowest rent in the building, but they're saying they're gonna move their daughter into that suite. This family owns at least five or six buildings that we've been able to identify. They own a large, like, 20, 30-acre equestrian ranch in North Saanich, um, but still they're saying this one specific, small one-bedroom unit that happens to have the lowest rent of all their buildings is the one that the daughter wants to move into. You know, you see it once and you wonder, you start to see it four or five times a month and you know that the development community is exploiting this loophole and they're trying to, to do what they can to turn over these suites. The most vulnerable tenants are the ones who should be the most valuable, the ones who have actually lived 
and buildings and paid rent for 30, 40 years, you know, who have given landlords tens and tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars over the last few decades. Those are the ones who have a target on their back. And honestly, it's, it's a tragedy what's happening right now. And it really is especially bad in Victoria. It brings up a lot of those questions of gentrification. It brings up a lot of questions of where we expect people to live and, and how willing we are to just say, well, our cities are going to be expensive. And if someone can't afford it, then they just need to leave. Okay, so we've hinted at it all over the place in this mm-hmm. conversation. But practically speaking, people who are facing these situations, what are some things that people can do? You know, it's, it's, it's funny to say it, but often personalized communication to government is still one of the most effective ways to get something done. You know, every one of us has a ton of things going on in their life. And if somebody sends them a message about something, if they get multiple messages about something, it's just human nature. It's natural for them just to think that it needs to be addressed. So we still really encourage people to reach out. You know, we find, we've always held, felt as an organization that some of those like coordinated actions where they get a hundred emails that look exactly the same, don't really do much. But if, if you take the time to sit down and write, you know, an email to a decision maker, and the ones that I would say actually have the most power in this kind of thing is there's a new MLA who's the Minister for Housing, that's Ravi Cologne. So he's probably the number one person that needs to receive messages that say, you need to fix this. These stories about the two-month notices are outrageous. Just make it so the landlords have to apply for it. Those kind of emails go a long way right now. Because especially when you know the government's thinking about it, when they're looking at it, it helps to, to push the urgency. It helps to make them realize that this is not something that they can just decide, oh, it's too complicated. You know, a lot of the times the government says, there is this problem, we're going to try to fix it. This is actually what's happened with supportive housing. The government recognizes there's a huge problem with supportive housing and the rights that happen in supportive housing. They actually contracted a national firm to do a round of consultation, six months. I can't imagine how much money they spent on this thing. Talking to people, the end result was, it's too complicated, we're not going to do anything. And that's where communication from people directly, that accountability actually matters, because it makes it harder for the government to just put up their hands and say, you know, we looked at it, but it's too complicated. Our local government as well, you know, your city councillors, even though they don't actually have control over residential tenancy law, they are a vocal voice for the city and and they often have a lot of influence on what they want the province to prioritize the level of government that is the most overlooked probably that no one ever talks about and has some of the biggest power is what we call the adm level so that's the associate deputy minister so these are not elected they are um, appointed bureaucrats who are often in line with what the government wants to do but because they're not elected officials, they have a level of freedom and they actually have a level of authority to do things. Often, that doesn't require changes to the law. Those are actually some of the best people to send messages to because they don't get messages a lot of the time. You know, politicians, they receive communication all the time. Probably somebody else who's reading it in the first place. And ADM reads their own emails. They, they write a lot of the policies. They decide a lot of the policies, but they often never get direct communication for people. So if you want to do the most bang for your buck, find yourself an ADM, send them an email, and just say, you know, I know you work on this stuff. This is the thing that really needs to change the most. And even one email from somebody to an ADM can make a huge difference. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time, Doug. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. We're at the end of the episode. If you've made it this far, I'm assuming you've listened to the whole thing. And um, we thought we would just take a little bit of time to unpack uh, this experience of making this episode. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's all of these legal, societal, political 
power issues, but I also just think a lot about time passing and just just uh, a more existential side of all of this, the, the landscapes of cities changing. And then, of course, yeah, it brings you back to these more political and power considerations of how it does feel like we're in a time of, of a real land grab where people who can afford to purchase land are just purchasing it for the sake of purchasing it. And it's a, it's a scary time for people who just really need a place and, and are really struggling to find that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like I, before making this episode, recognized the fact that the law is sort of inadequate in this area. But I think after talking to everyone, it's like, it's really, it's not set up for normal people. And I also think it very was interesting what I think Doug said about, you know, how much we need to just get out there and expect more from our politicians to actually make these changes. And, and speaking with people from track and seeing how like they're totally reasonable, doable changes. It's not like a mystery of how to like fix these problems, you know. So it's such a shame that we're just unfortunately in this situation where we don't have like the power to make those changes. Yeah, totally. And how it can feel like such a game. There was the big shift with the renovations, right? Mm -hmm. And then the new game in town becomes the, my family's moving in, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it's all these, such a cat and mouse game. Yeah. yeah. The second the legislation changes, okay, what's the new way that we're going to be able to kick poor people out so we can hike up the rents? It does feel like it's a bit of a never-ending game and we're just capturing one sliver of the timeline of it. Mm-hmm. And you really hear that in the interviews with the students. I think I asked a lot of people, like, what do you see as a solution? What is justice? And they're all like, uh, like it's, it's non-existent, maybe. Um, I think that hopelessness is very prevalent. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, to not make this a completely depressing end of an episode, um, I think you know, we should all take to heart what Doug said about writing to your city councillors, to members of the legislature. So yeah, we'd really encourage you to do that. Yeah. And also Doug had said he was interested in potentially having volunteers to come and help with a variety of initiatives that they're taking to help mitigate these power imbalances. Um, yeah, that there's opportunities out there to work on these issues if you really care about them. This episode of Starry and Decisis was recorded on the unceded territories of the Lekwungen peoples. I'd also like to recognize the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich peoples, whose relationship with the land is both contemporary and historic. Join us next time for a conversation about true crime and the law. As always, thanks for listening. 